Well, we've had guests on the podcast before, and we've had people who've written books on the podcast before, but never have we had, Marcus, guests who wrote a book where there's a cast of characters, and I know like 40 or more of those characters personally have worked with some of them, and it's kind of bizarre to plug into this time and space in music Back in the 80s, when it was all happening on the Sunset Strip, and the authors of Nothing But a Good Time, and it was definitely a good time, Marcus, as somebody who spent just a little bit of time adjacent to all this. Our guests today on the podcast are Tom Bourgeois and Richard Beanstock. Welcome, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. You bet. Appreciate it. The book, fantastic read. A long read, but boy, did it fly. So, you know, it was easy to get lost in time. So thank you for such a fun read about a crazy decade. Happy to oblige. Yeah, sorry for making you read too much. No, we love to read. Here's what's going on right now, guys. You guys, I know you sent out advanced copies to a lot of the people in 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 the book and in the press. And right now they are all deep into this thing. They've dived into it and have been absorbing it all, not just their parts, people who are quoted by you guys, but all the other stuff too. And here on the podcast, when we come across something that's just mind-blowing, we generally will say something like, what? You know, kind of like, we can't believe we found this. And I did that several times just while reading the book because of the people that I know and stuff about them, Dave Sabo specifically, but other people too. And some of the things you guys found out from talking to all of them really make the book special. Well, thank you. Um. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happens when you get every, and we really tried wherever possible. You know, there's about 10 bands that we follow through their whole careers in the book. And we really tried wherever possible and where people were alive, obviously, to get everyone involved so that you get all of the perspectives because people remember things differently. And more importantly, I think people don't think the same things are important. So like your what moment, which could come from Snake, like the audition for Bon Jovi or this or that, or to him might be no big deal. Or, you know, to somebody else. So once you get everybody talking, they give you like these little breadcrumbs and you can, you know, follow them up and be like, hey, he mentioned this. He's like, oh, yeah, I didn't think you'd want to talk about that. You know, and it's like, well, no, that's the best thing that we've heard all day. Yeah. Like, I didn't know Snake had auditioned for Cinderella. I knew him and John were close. I didn't know how close or how they met, by the way. There's a lot of that kind of stuff in there. We talked about Metallica coming together through this period being a completely different animal, right? But key meeting of guys who would later be in, I think it was Guns N' Roses, met at a Metallica show at, uh, I don't want to say Gazaria. I think it was the country club or something like that. But these are the kind of things. Now, I'm already getting fuzzy on all this stuff because my brain is trying to absorb Mm -hmm. a million factoids about the L.A. scene and the way that New Jersey, New York kind of plugged into it as well. It's really just an amazing way to approach telling this story. Yeah, I think, um, you know, even what you're saying about all these moments like that, we had a lot of those moments, too, putting this together. And the Snake Sabo Cinderella moment being one of them, like, I remember Tom and I on the phone, we were like, holy shit, man. And like, you know, and just to hear, (laughs) because we're like you guys, like we grew up loving Skid Row, loving Cinderella, like some of this stuff kind of doesn't show up on your radar, you know, and that you have those moments where it does, and it kind of blows your mind. And then there are some other moments where you're following stories just because you want to know more about them yourself, much less beyond just write about them, you know, in the Snake Sabo Bon Jovi 
thing is one of those. Like we all know there's a relationship there, and that's why Bon Jovi winds up helping out Skid Row and all that. But like you know, I know I personally was always sort of not clear on what the real history between Snake and John Bon Jovi is and like when they met and how close they really were. Like was Snake really a member of Bon Jovi? Was he not? So we just went deep on it. You know, like Snake is in there talking about a lot of different things, but the Bon Jovi thing, like we just did a whole separate part with him about his history with John Bon Jovi and how that great stuff. his career. Yeah. And like and that's that the first stuff. time yeah, like I had never it had never made sense to me in a linear fashion. And so like laying it out in the book, you're like, oh okay, well, that's how it happened. So mm-hmm. as much as we're providing a service to you guys, you know, and the readers, mm-hmm. like we're kind of providing a service to ourselves too, because this is just stuff we've wondered about for 30 Where years. were you guys in your lives around that time when the, in the 80s period? Me, I would say I was in my 20s. Uh, Marcus, you were probably in your teens. I was in, in my teens 20s, and early right? 20s. Yeah, I turned yeah. 20 in 86. I was 15 and 86. So I was like right at the most vulnerable age to have this stuff like beamed right into my head by MTV. Nice. To be perverted um, by the music to the devil. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I was, but I was totally the kid who watching Headbangers Ball every weekend and, you know, buying all the records. You know, I guess I kind of like got on the train pyromania and maybe mental health like everybody else and then but like i got really heavily into it oddly like i think what sealed my fate was like the talk dirty to me video because like to me i was like these dudes are having the most fun and leading and having their best like I'm like that seems like the best way to live like whatever's going on in that video <laughs> with all those guitars and that much smiling and then like goofing around that's the best way to be did it surprise so, you guys to find out that it really was a lot like that you know that that was the video that life spilled to the video like that? I think, yeah. I mean, in some ways it did. And in some ways you find out life was nothing like that, you know? And it's Mm -hmm. like, and that's kind of neat too, because in a way that at the same time makes it seem more attainable. And at the same time (laughs) makes it seem completely unattainable. Because one of the things that Tom and I talked about too during the process of doing this, and Tom and I both are guitarists and have played in bands and have you know had various levels of like middling success doing it but you know we sort of said like the way these guys lived and like you know we don't know that we could have done that like we might have been one of the guys that (laughs) dropped out and went home you know and there's a lot of those guys in the book too because it's like it's intense i love that yeah yeah even a band like poison that it's like all partying and silly string and smiles and big hair like they're living in a way that most of us would not survive and we go you know running home to mommy and daddy if we if given the opportunity but they stick it out and that's why they persevere you guys paint a really great picture of a couple of those apartments in the stories that make you feel that that you can almost smell it you know what i mean everybody's heard about the you know motley Cruz house and stuff yeah. but like when poison are discussing this warehouse that they live in that they inherited from keel ron keel says in the book like the second we got a deal we were out you know but like poison are living in a warehouse in a really bad area of LA they literally there are flying cockroaches everywhere in the house they've like putting up sheets that that's what their room dividers are and like pretty much every time they go outside like there's a gang try to kill them or like people throwing stuff at them it was really an intense way to live and you know there was no safety net for these guys like it was like either I succeed or I'm done and I think that that is like Rich was saying like to go through that and like have that commitment and that conviction and that's how you see why you know poisons 
original guitarist matt smith he just he's like i'm out i mean his girlfriend at home in pennsylvania is expecting a child but i'm sure there's plenty of dudes who are in la playing in bands who like didn't he just had to get out i mean he wanted to do the right thing but uh, like as ricky rocket observed he just he was like he couldn't stand living like an animal so there really is like a sort of a, a fortitude and and gumption that you discover with the guys who make it that you don't really realize until you're hearing all of these stories. Like, they really are the hardest workers. They did work hard, and you see it throughout the book. They were dirt poor. There was a lot of using, too, and they were very open about the fact that they used people for groceries. They used women for, you know, to cook for them. They used uh, people for drugs, laundry services, and it seems to be very indicative of that culture. Did you find it... uh, straight common all the way through with everybody you talked to, even in the stories that didn't make it into the book? You, I think you can assume that it was probably the case, especially the ones on the West Coast. Like, I don't know that that was necessarily going on as much on the East Coast. Maybe it was, but you don't really hear those bands talk about it in the same way. But the bands on the West Coast, you know, a lot of them just sort of offer it up freely. And the ones, you know, others, if you bring it up, they usually say like, oh, yeah, that was happening. It's not something they're proud of or not proud of, really. It's just sort of a fact of life the way it was. And it's like these bands, you know, they they weren't guys that had day jobs and then clocked out and then went and, you know, jammed with their, their band mm-hmm. for an hour. Like they were doing it 24-7 because if you weren't practicing, you were, you know, out flyering or promoting or perfecting your look or your, or your act or like yeah. it was like, you know, fully immersive 24-7, 365 if you wanted to make it because that's i mean the the competition was crazy too so yeah i mean they were if if somebody was going to offer something they were going to take it yeah it's interesting a lot of the east coast guys you know you've got in 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 our book you've got tom Kiefer working for photomat and picking up film and delivering it you've got like the guys at skid row or working at a music store or delivering magazines you know the guys in kicks are making a living playing covers so there seem to be like on the east coast i'm not gonna like there seem to be more of people earning money before they were successful and somehow maybe the east coast is more rough and tumble maybe it's because in la you've got like this really concentrated scene so it's easy to pick mm-hmm. people up and like the rainbow and you, you latch onto this one and that one it seems like a much more interweaved sort of thing in the jersey scene there were some women who they were band-aids they weren't groupies necessarily but they were helping guys and helping people get you know find their way but not to the degree and as widespread as you saw in the la scene in a way even though there was all kinds of uh, sultriness involved in sex probably you know left and right a lot of it seemed kind of like motherly in their caring for the guys in the band, it's like that scene in Almost Famous where, where she's describing the way the groupies, you love that band, you know, the way you feel about it. And there are women who gave a lot. They gave, a, and some of them are grandmoms now. And they're sitting there and they're telling these stories and they're going to read this book and they're going to say, oh yeah, I was in that shit. I was in the middle of that shit. <laughs> totally. Well, there's one, I'm not going to say who it is, but there is one woman in the book who, you know, now works as a, uh, a guidance counselor at a school, you know, mm-hmm. and, and had a had a fun history, you know, in the past. But it's like, so yeah, no one was really sort of embarrassed or, you know, about what had gone on. They were all, everyone was very matter of fact. Which yeah. was maybe it's maybe it's far enough down the road. I because, think so. Yeah, because somebody said something about, "Hey, look, I'm a dad. I have I have a daughter, or uh-huh. res- more respectable now in their life, so to speak." But they had that perspective of time, and also the times were different then. 
Yeah, that's um, the other thing. Mm-hmm. People who get crazy about this might not understand what the Hollywood strip was like, you know, what the Sunset Strip mm-hmm. was all about in the 60s or 70s or even the 80s. They may not have any concept of that. But if you get it and you understand the natural progression of what had happened in L.A. through the decades, what was happening there was a fucking miracle of sorts. Here are guys who came to town, didn't know anybody, didn't have any resources, some of them didn't know how to play, and they ended up selling millions of albums. Bands that were flipped off repeatedly, mm-hmm. Quiet Riot's the best example, and you really tell the story great in this book about how they were flipped off left and right, and then that record takes off, and it's like the ultimate, you know, here you go, guys, yeah. in your face, you know? And those kind of things are the stories that are inside this, and it gave me some perspective, too, on some of the bands I worked with. Now, you guys don't know me that well. I worked with uh, a label called CMC International and oh, wow. Sanctuary okay. Records back at mm-hmm. the turn of the century, mm-hmm. and... Now, from reading your book, I understand so much more about the psychological inner workings inside Dokken than I ever could understand in the last 15, <laughs> yeah. 20 years. And Pilsen and I have talked about it, but this explains it. How the hell, knowing Mick Brown, that he didn't just flat out fucking kill Don, and I don't know how that didn't happen. Also, I understand more George's fuck you, let's go play attitude towards Don at times. Did you work with Madeline Scarpula? At, at, I at, did. She was one of the most helpful people in getting this project moving in the very beginning. When I was working in New York with Sanctuary, our offices were out the door and half a turn to the, the next office, you know, on the corner of yeah. the office situation. And uh, she was a whole lot of fun there working there. And we learned both learned a lot about these artists that were you know familiar to us but not our friends or our colleagues or whatever we learned a lot together she's on a short list of people who like before we had a book deal you know which is the hardest time when you're doing a book like this and you've got to get a proposal together you know so you've got to make a couple chapters and show it to to the publishers mm-hmm. like you got to get people to talk to you before you have a deal so they may not even have you know you're they're, they're really taking a mm-hmm. risk giving you their time and you know madeline and a couple of other people were really helpful in just being like these guys are cool you know please talk you know and so she thanked in the book for going to bat for us this is the imbalanced history of rock and roll i'm marcus goldman alongside ray Coob. we are going to take a quick pause for the cause and then we are going to continue this incredible conversation with the authors of nothing but a good time an incredible book that takes a look at the 80s the way it happened. We learned a ton. Seriously, this book is awesome. The authors are Tom Bojour and Richard Beanstock, and we will be right back. When you go in the crooked eye and you look at the board, you're always going to find something that makes you feel right. Right there in the heart of Hapro at York Road in Montgomery, go see the gang at Crooked Eye. It's all good, and it's all happening at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. The fact that Crooked Eye has survived the pandemic and done a great job staying open and taking all of the necessary precautions to keep everybody safe is a wonderful thing. And I think it's a testament to not only their business, but who they are as people. Well, we raise our pints to you, and now they're pouring at Jamie's House of Music in Lansdowne. That's not too far from you in Delaware County, right? That is true. It's right down the street, literally about two and a half, three miles from my pad. So live music and Crooked Eye near me, too. Jamie's House of Music does great work with live music, and they never had somebody there pouring. And now the Crooked Eye crew is there 
Bring in all those delicious brews from Hapro. So Delaware County, come and check out Crooked Eye and the great tunes at Jamie's House of Music. All the details about all this on CrookedEyeBrewery.com, their website, and follow them on Facebook, too. Whenever you need a tasty pint, remember, Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. This is The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, and we are back after this short break speaking with Richard Beanstock and Tom Bojour about their incredible book, Nothing But a Good Time. One of my favorite parts about the book, which was weaved throughout the stories, but especially more prevalent in the beginning and the early part of the movement, is you knew that these members of these bands all played with each other and played in each other's bands and played in bands together and then switched bands, but you really clarified to the extent of it how much more of it really happened than we knew. Like, Nikki Six was considered as a replacement for Kelly and Quiet Riot, and then Randy Rose said no let's go with this guy and that guy was rudy sarzo no way was rudy rudy's become a friend of the podcast uh, we were doing an episode about his him and his birthday twin and he just popped into the middle of it surprising us and uh that's a lot of fun and he's such a funny guy has his own radio show on the internet and yeah like stuff like that and also and along with lines what you're saying marcus how like the bands that the guys were in are all referenced in next to their name and places. In some cases, I went, hmm, I didn't know that person was in that band. I did that a lot while I'm reading, and I learned so much about guys that I already knew a lot about, or at least I thought I knew a lot about. Yeah, a lot of these relationships are just kind of mind-blowing, especially on the West Coast. I mean, if you dig even a little bit, it's like everybody knows everybody and, and is one degree separated, if separated at all, in terms of having having played together and Ray, like what you bring up about how the first time anyone comes into the book, it says next to their name, what band they're in. I mean, sometimes those lists got pretty long. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's like, and it's just all the bands. It's like, it says rat docking and you yeah. know, all this stuff. 
Again, it's another one of those things that I know I felt this way, maybe Tom did too, that you sort of know this stuff, but you're not 100% sure Mm -hmm. what went on between George Lynch and Jakey Lee with Ozzy. But like when you have George and Jake and Ozzy and Sharon, you know, we talked to all four of them and they tell the story about the actual tryout. And it's like, okay, well, now you know exactly how it went down. And now you know exactly how it went down with Jake coming into Rat and then leaving Rat and why he left Rat and why when Robin Crosby comes in, when Warren Martini comes in. This is like, these are all stories that we knew they happened, but like, I didn't know the details about a lot of it. So it was like, let's try to untangle this a little bit. And what you get is you get the actual story, but then the bonus is that the stories are just completely insane and like mm-hmm. great and entertaining <laughs> yes, on top of are. it. It's the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Our guests are Tom Bourgeois and Rich uh, Beanstalk. They have written this really fun book called Nothing But a Good Time, and it's uh, out now, right? People can yes. get it now, right? I'm oh, yeah. At my oh, copy, mm-hmm. it's a presser, but uh, the people who put this book out are going to be really glad that they did, fellas. I think so. It's going to be one of those music insider things that takes off beyond mm-hmm. the music business and the people who are there. And you quote a few of my friends So far, it seems to be getting... Yeah, <laughs> it seems to be... People seem to be digging it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's actually... Not to toot our own horns, but it, it was a New York Times bestseller. That's awesome. On the first week, so. Wow. Yeah, so it's That's been, awesome. which is great to see a book about, yeah. you know, Poison and Kicks and Skid yeah. Row on the New York Times bestseller <laughs> list. Uh, it's a little and, bit mind-bending, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah. And the detail on some of the stuff that I lost interest in a long time ago, like the Striper story, the way you guys really got all sides and all portions of that. I always was one of those people who was a little skeptical, but you guys painted mm-hmm. the true picture of a band that was part of things and was quite successful despite, you know, mm-hmm. all that. And I see a lot of stuff, quoting my friend Larry Mazur, who I've known forever, back to the 80s and the earliest days of Cinderella, who were, like my boys, they started my first show I did the first time I was on doing my metal show on MMR in Philly started with Cinderella song and it's even mentioned uh, the bad seamstress blues into coming apart at the seams you guys even referenced that one of my favorite moments in Cinderella shows in those days when they were opening for Bon Jovi at the Spectrum here they would come out every night the last couple nights there was a long stand the last couple nights I went just to see Cinderella play those kind of songs and play the stuff from the first record and some of the second just mind blowing stuff and getting all the Sky's perspectives, Larry Mazur in a book. That's good to see. And that's one of the important things I think that we really tried to do with this book is not just talk to the musicians. Mm-hmm. Because where we could, we talked to the managers, we talked to people at the labels, we talked to photographers, we talked to costume designers. They have a very different perspective on things than the musicians do. So like Larry's take on Cinderella or Larry's take on Nelson, who we also managed, you know, yes, is really, you know, when Larry says, God, it was really hard being married when I was managing Nelson because there was just, you know, <laughs> women everywhere. Like that is the perspective of a civilian, like for Nelson, every night was just like probably insanity. For Larry, who's like a, just like a normal guy from from Southern Jersey, you know, like <laughs> that's what you or I would go into that scene and perceive it like. You'd be like, oh my God. You know? Or the Bob Krasno story that where you're talking about that part and it's something, something that was surprising about him. A quick aside about, and this isn't in the book, but at one point Larry and I've known each other for a long time, like I said, since the mid 80s. And at one point he calls me up and goes, cool, guess what? This kid from Northeast Philly now manages Kiss. 
How about that? We were just so happy. You know, he actually got me a great interview with those guys. Marcus, we haven't yet discussed that interview on the podcast, but we will at some point. Sitting down with Gene and Paul, just talking. And it was like this, you know, where everybody's, you know, just kind of sharing thoughts and vibing off of what the other guy said. But I got to ask you, because you did a great job on Quiet Ride, I think you mentioned. But how long before Frankie passed, did you get Benali to talk to you? How long ago on the timeline was that? It was probably within a year. I, I would say it was It was pretty close to the end of the book, actually. He was probably the last Quiet Riot member we got. He hadn't announced publicly that he was sick, because I remember doing the interview with him and not knowing that. But not too long after that, he did. So, um, And Frankie was great, because he clearly was sick at that time. Gave a super long interview, and then he had somewhere he had to be, and he was like, just call me back next week. We'll do it again and gave another super long interview and just went through everything even other people we were having trouble getting in touch with he hooked us up with a few people or at least tried to and then um it really filled in so many blanks in the book because like you said quiet ride's a huge part of this and their success is a huge part of this and again he's another one of those early days in the dubrow days when they're not really quiet riot like he's the one who can tell that story because rudy wasn't in the band at that time kelly garney who's in the book wasn't in the band at that time right. kevin no longer with us so like we needed Frankie there and he was just super generous and clearly going through a lot on his end and had a lot on his mind and didn't need to give us the time of day to talk about you know come on feel the noise for the 10,000th time but he did it and he was amazing I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit but one of my favorite parts of the book was how you described the end of the scene and how the 90s took over and you went into great detail about how the labels especially turned on the bands from the 80s and just basically were like, yeah, we're not going to spend any of that money on you. Oh yeah, you recorded this album this weekend, you're dropped on Monday. And there was a lot of that and I think one of my favorite parts of that area was when you quoted Jerry Uh, Cantrell on page 478 and he was straight up and said that he was bothered by the fact that people are assuming that bands like Alice in Chains and Nirvana killed the 80s hair bands when it wasn't that at all. They never wanted to do that. You're only shiny and new once and then you become old and then you're replaced and that's how fucking life works and he was very deadpan about that and very honest and I think that was a hard reality for the 80s bands and maybe one of the things that they didn't discuss or didn't see on the changeover was the fact that maybe people were tired of that excess and decadence and wanted something a little more thought-provoking and a little more gritty in that type of a personal, relatable way. And maybe that's part of why the music changed. Yeah, but that change that you're talking about, Marcus, was tangible to these guys because it's funny because I've been texting with some of the people in the book and uh, Joey Allen texted me back and he's the one who told me, him and Janie told me the story about going in after the success of Cherry Pie, going in to see Donnie Einer at Columbia Records, and everything is that first Alice in Chains record in the lobby. All the when they had come in to do Cherry, you know, the pre the meeting for Cherry Pie, it was their album and all that. And just you know, shortly thereafter, they go back for the next record, and it's all Alice in Chains. So that's where some of that perception comes from them telling that story. But they tell a lot of stories, and it's funny how often that Warren ends up referring to playing at some kind of a backyard thing or a party, and that seemed to be a big thing in that scene going back to Van Halen probably even going back before that because the last time I saw them they were playing at a live outdoor concert in Florida when the last time I ran into Warren I was on the road and it's like they're playing over here okay let's go 
like one of those things. And uh, it all started in the backyards for a lot of these guys. You know, that's where the connections to the fans were bonded, I think. And in the, in the early days of the clubs, it was hard still for, even though they're all superstar names now, it was hard for them to attract people at first. And you guys do a great job of telling how bands in that scene, especially in L.A., flyered the shit out of everything. The moment where David Lee Roth pulls up and tells the guy from the band, put them up higher because that way they can't rip them down, you know? that kind of stuff that's in there really gives the full picture of the scene in LA, especially. Well, I think that that's one of the misconceptions that even I had as a kid, like being, you know, 13 or whatever, when, or 12, when come on, feel the noise comes on, you think like this stuff came out of nowhere. And then you also think, and people I think now think back on this era as like a very corporate prefabricated era. And what the book really shows is that there was a tremendous amount of DIY going on, you know, like. Especially in the marketing, marketing area. The marketing, oh, yeah. the, the, you know, with Motley, the, the marketing, self-recording, the, the, the postering, you know, Motley makes their own record basically rat makes their own first record you know the, the major labels were not out looking for this stuff these bands were considered dinosaur bands until quiet riot came out and you know so you've got bands flyering building stage sets you know you've got wasp yeah. doing pyro like they're meat. doing arena shows yeah they're doing arena shows before the there's any money yeah <laughs> so this stuff was ground up these people were not concocted in some corporate rock lab these were bands that were yeah playing backyard parties you know doing everything they could to sell tickets to their shows working really really hard and not necessarily with any guarantee that they would ever succeed particularly in the early days so i think that that's a really important thing to remember when people sort of write off this music as just being like like this corporate you know they think of the power ballads and all this mm-hmm. stuff and really it was as diy as any other genre like mm-hmm. punk rock or, so, or something it like had that. to be in a lot of ways because of the the way everything was situated in la it was hard to break through that yeah. and you guys really do a nice job of shining light on some of the people behind the scene some of the managers the people who were or were movers and shakers in the industry a and r people some of them maybe not the best at their thing you guys really showed some of the warts of of that whole process as well but you really get into all of the characters that are down you know filtering out from just the bands and their managers there's all kinds of people involved who are some of your favorite people to just get on the horn and talk with or go sit down and talk with about this stuff one person that for me comes to mind just based on what you were just saying about the managers and the people behind the scenes was alan niven obviously you know best known as guns and roses manager um and also great white's manager slash co-songwriter slash sort of svengali with them the thing that's great about alan is he's just super smart super funny super sharp like he can talk to you about exactly what went on with those bands like and not just personalities and everything else like he can tell you you know the exact numbers of what they paid for this and that the studio time and like how much the records cost and what the return was like he he knows everything and remembers everything the way it was and then the other thing that was great about him is you finish talking about those bands, which is what he, again what he's known for, and then it's like, oh yeah, he actually sort of discovered Motley Crue and you know brought them to Green World, which distributed right. Too Fast for Love, and then he also kind of discovered Dokken and brought them you know into the fold, and they went to Elektra, and then through that he starts producing Great White, and then so on and so forth. But it's like this guy kind of had his hand in everything. 
some of the biggest bands and biggest moments of this era. And like, you get this crazy insight into what all that was about from his perspective. And it's like, wow, you know, here is a really cool through line from Motley Crue to Best for Love, which sort of starts everything straight through to like Guns N' Roses, which is kind of like the biggest thing by the end of the 80s. And it's like, here's this one guy that not only saw it all, but like was a lot of the cause for it to happen in the first place. And at that one crucial point, he reverse engineers a show where GNR is supposed to open for Great White and he flips it around because of what's been happening just since they announced that show. I mean, you show those kind of things and mm-hmm. uh, like Vicki Hamilton really do a great job of showing off what she did with Poison and, and the guys, the Hine brothers and all that stuff. Really, there's so much more than what people normally get from whatever source they get it from. And it's, it's all kinds of great deep info. And you got to get the book. It's called Nothing But a Good Time. All those people bought it for the new york times list they can't be wrong right guys <laughs> hope not yeah no definitely right uh, now like, <laughs> well, we're gonna find out we're gonna find out how much they liked it right we're gonna because it's 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 just the first wave and i think insiders are telling their friends go read this book you're gonna love it it's right. just that kind of book we're running out of time here, i guys. think so i think we have about a minute left before zoom cuts us off so thank you very much gentlemen and thank you for writing a wonderful book it's by far my favorite music book of 2021 so far and my favorite read so far of 2021 so thank you thank you so much thanks so much for having us so you best thoughts from you guys before we go look out for the an upcoming documentary on the book as well we actually that is going to happen nice congrats guys look forward to it congratulations (laughs) thank you you very much Take care, care, guys. Holy cow, Ray. I cannot believe the little bit of the taste of the book we got with Tom and Richard. Oh, my goodness. You know what I can't believe? I can't believe how many people I know who are in the book telling this story. People I went through that period of time with. And the way the musicians jumped from band to band a lot more than we actually knew was mind-blowing as well. So many stories, too, that people tell out of school. But, yeah, the way that, uh, you know, if your band folded, that's okay. We had our eye on you. You know, play, come play bass for us. And drummers would change and guitar players would change and all that stuff all the time. So, But uh, it's really just uh, the first step, though, in our exploring this book. Because since we sat with those fellas, we've hooked up another chance to talk to them in a future episode coming down the line here on the podcast. I can't wait to talk to those guys again. Again, plus, we're going to be talking to who else, Ray? Possibly people that are in the book. Some of the participants in the book and other people who are around all that. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? It would make it a different kind of thing. And we might hear a cool story or two that did not make the book as well. If you've got a cool story, and it's probably not in the book, you can send it to us at the Imbalance History <laughs> at imbalancehistory at gmail.com our email account or uh, hook up with us online on the socials Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're on all three of those things. And you also find our website, imbalancehistory.com where you can find everything, including the blogs and everything else we do as part of this crazy podcast. You ready to go, man? I know we want to go like, you know, dig into the back of the closet a little bit, see if we still got some of that stuff. I don't. I think I burned it all. Whatever I had that was that kind of era stuff, I think it's <laughs> long gone. It doesn't fit anyway, right? But but until the next time we get together and talk about this or anything else that we talk about, thanks for listening to us. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus Goldman. This is the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.